Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Ready to take your fundraising to the next level? BWF is a firm on the cutting edge, one that strives to propel you to what's next on the horizon. BWF serves large and medium-sized nonprofits in the areas of campaign management, campaign planning, and transformational gift strategies. BWF doesn't apply a one-size-fits-all approach to campaigns. Instead, we provide a framework that's right for your organization. While our world-class analytics and fundraising forecasts help project a target number, our multifaceted approach to engaging the prospect pool enables us to provide an effective strategy to meet and exceed your goals. Contact us today at bwf.com to learn more about partnering on your next campaign. Hello, thanks for tuning in. This week, Rob Scott and I talk about his role at MIT that evolved out of an idea. Rob actually wrote the job description for his role and has been able to live out his vision. Rob gives great advice on working with senior leaders and explains how he has executed his own visions. Robert D. Scott, a senior advisor to the Chancellor for Academic Advancement at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, as we know, is a career fundraising professional, advancement leader, and veteran of four multi-billion dollar campaigns. He's held various leadership positions in resource development at MIT during the past 20 years, and before coming to MIT, Scott served New York University as a development professional for five years. He entered the fundraising field in 1989 at Cornell University, his alma mater. Over the course of his 30-year career, Scott has held national and international volunteer leadership roles within the professional advancement community. Now let's get started. Hi, Rob. Welcome to The Debrief. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have your voice here. Not only are you currently working at MIT and have lots to share, but you're also a Cornellian, which we love on The Debrief. Go Big Red. (laughs) So let's dive right in. I want to start our conversation in this exciting innovation season, talking about your experiences at MIT and some new things that your team has tried and learned from. Great. So tell us about your role. It's it's sort of one of a kind and tell us how it came about. I'm in sort of an interesting role. And I think if I give a little context, it'll help. MIT was going through a leadership change and I'd been at MIT for about 12 years, which seems like an eternity in development time, 12 years. So I started looking around the really sort of rich landscape in Boston. There's, there were great opportunities for a CDO at a whole bunch of different institutions of different sizes, but I kept being pulled back to the fantastic research advances at MIT. And um, around that same time, we were starting to launch a campaign and the president came up with this sort of novel idea of charging a well-known uh, longtime faculty member with helping him in becoming the ambassador of MIT around the world. So he asked Eric Grimson, who took his PhD from MIT in 1980 and had held sort of a variety of um, administrative posts and teaching positions since then, was a tenured faculty member, to be his sort of force multiplier or um, ambassador to take MIT around the world in service of the campaign. 
And um, I thought, I looked at this and I thought, this is sort of a wide open field and a great opportunity to work with some senior leadership with some great, wonderful donors to extend the reach of, of MIT literally around the world. And I sort of jumped at the opportunity to work with Eric on this. So it's a position that's, you know, I joke sometimes that I'm the master of, or that I'm the, uh, that I'm the chief of no staff. Um, <laughs> he, Eric and I work and my job really is to make sure that he um, is well deployed, that he is as effective as possible, that he has what he needs to go out and have conversations with, um, with, you know, MIT alumni, with other folks that are interested in the mission, with sort of opening new doors and new philanthropic regions even. So it started from an innovative idea that then needed support and framework and growth. Right. It was sort of an, like most innovations, it came with an idea, but, mm -hmm. but then the sort of the devil was in the details. Right. How do we make this thing work? You know, um, the, the faculty member reports directly to the president. So we um, are outside the normal chain of command of development operation. Mm -hmm. But we obviously have to work super close with the resource development team, which we do, and with um, school development officers across the institute. So been at MIT for 12 years, and I sort of managed a lot of the different units. So I had a really good idea, I thought, of the capacity and the, the uh, organization itself. And so I could help be a sort of interface between Eric and the resource development organization who really are the ones that keep him sort of moving around the world and talking with people at the times that they need to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. So when this came about, did you raise your hand when you saw this need or was there some matchmaking going on internally? Oh, I, I wrote a job description for it. And I said- That's so cool. I said, you need help and I'm gonna help you. Oh, that's yeah. so very cool and important. And I wasn't sure how it was going to work. Like most things that are, you know, this way. I was sure that it was, I was sure that ultimately it was going to work in some way because the president and um, the chancellor for academic advancement, which is the sort of title they came up with for Eric, really had a wonderfully long personal relationship and they had a great deal of mm -hmm. trust. So I knew that was going to work, basically. So we talk about strategic initiatives actually in a couple of episodes in this season because they are entrepreneurial and unique. And in, in a lot of ways, this is also a strategic initiative. But what would you say, you know, because of the principal gifts piece and the international piece and the leadership piece, but what would you say, you know, you had referenced leading other units, but what set you up in your career to give you that moment to say, I'm going to write this job description and, and put myself here. Like, what was it that was the root of that excitement? I think it was, you know, for me personally, it was not only the opportunity to continue to contribute to a great institution. And I, there are other great institutions that I could have gone to, I'm sure to do some work with, but it was this notion that this was sort of a, I don't want to say the wild west, but it was sort of, it was a wide open field for somebody to really um, to make a difference. And that, as I looked at it, um, I'd had uh, over time worked, um, done a lot of management work and I'd done a lot of um, uh, sort of strategic planning type work, but I, I was really looking forward to getting back to being sort of on an, in an individual contributor role. 
and to expand, you know, to really get a chance to dig into some sort of interesting cases. And, and, you know, and I look at my past in working, I had worked with Eric when he was in prior roles, when he was the chancellor for students and when he was the department head. So I knew that personally it was, you know, it was sort of a personality issue. And personally, I knew I got along well with him. And personally, I knew just what a wonderful resource he was. Um, faculty can be doing all kinds of things with their time. And he had elected to say to the president that he would be willing to place this in as a priority over all his other work. And so I think it's very important when we're working with faculty, even if we're just sort of working with them on an ad hoc basis, to be mindful of the fact that they have a, that there's a large opportunity cost for them in doing development work, that they have other things that they could be doing to advance themselves and to advance their departments and to advance their school. That's sort of like the dark matter that sits out there in the universe. You don't always see it, but it, it's, it's truly there. Um, yeah. And it's important to make sure that we're sort of spending the time that they give us on development operations and on, on outreach to donors, on outreach to prospects as effectively as possible. And that they feel well-prepared, that they feel that they are um, being effective and that this is a good use of their time. Let's talk a little bit about your partnership with Eric. You know, you had referenced working with him in other settings, which makes sense. You had built up a rapport. Um, and you, you said something interesting. You said that, you know, your personalities worked. Do you think that that's always going to be a critical factor in working with faculty and leadership? I think that, I think that anybody, I, not anybody, but I think many people could sit in my chair and do my job. I think that the hard part for any organization would be identifying the faculty member or the senior leader who is willing to do this. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if that answers your question or not. Well, Feel free to drill down. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is not everyone's personality meshes. And that's true with donors, that's true with faculty, yeah. that's true with colleagues. Yeah. Like, would it be possible to do your work well if you didn't have that rapport and collegiality? I don't think so. I don't think so, okay. because I think out of that grows a sense of trust. Mm -hmm. you know? And there are often times when I spend a lot of my time saying, this is a good idea for him to engage with. This is not a good idea for him to engage with. You know, occasionally he'll turn to me and say, well, Rob, your title is senior advisor, so advise me. And I do my best to do so. And part of that's sort of our personalities. We're sort of I think we both are interested, we're both sort of very interested in what's going on at the Institute and how to bring that out to the world, how to tell that story. And part of that is the fact that I've got a sort of, that I've got sort of experience in development and that that is an area that I feel confident in and I can be confident in talking with him, with, with, even to the point of providing constructive feedback and constructive criticism. Mm -hmm. You know, when we sort of, when we, when we've sort of built this role out, I should talk a little bit about how he works. If he's going to meet with a donor, I try to stay out of the way of the relationship manager and try to have the relationship manager staff him whenever possible. Hmm. And occasionally they'll want to give feedback on how the meeting went, but they find him formidable and ask me to do the feedback. <laughs> so, and, and he's, 
he's very open to that, at least with me. So that's an, you know, that's an important part of any sort of development partnership with a faculty member is being able to understand the relative roles of each person and to sort of maximize the, the benefit of both people working as a team together. So I want to highlight what you just said. And for people who maybe don't work at a big university, you might have missed this. But what Rob was saying is that if there was another person at the university, perhaps in a unit or a school who was assigned to a particular prospect, that he would let them go ahead with Eric to either make the ask or cultivate or whatever it is. And I would say in our world, that's a generous move, right? Like you don't have to do that. I don't, but they're the ones that know the person and they're the ones who yeah. ostensibly should be able to get the most out of the meeting. It's, you know, the feedback goes both ways. Mm -hmm. um, so so I, I get really involved with the planning, you know, the planning of trips, the decision-making around what's a good use of his time and what's not. I take a look at every briefing, all the briefing materials that he gets. I make sure that he's got what he needs in there. I look for questions that I can see people asking him so he's not blindsided by those. And it's just sort of a matter of our culture that we try to um, make sure that the best possible people are in front of the donor and are building that relationship. And this is an opportunity for them to, you know, this is an opportunity for many of those relationship managers to travel with a senior officer and they haven't done it before. And then occasionally there's just times when he's going one place and the RM has to be somewhere else and I step in and staff it because I can do that as well. I've done that in the past. Or we'll both, you know, depending on the size of the, sometimes donors bring their own people with them. And in those mm -hmm. cases, we'll sort of staff up to match that as needed. So I, I'm so glad to hear that you're always looking at these opportunities holistically and using best practice. Can you give us some examples of some wins that you've had? I mean, this is such a unique model and it would be great to hear how it's been successful in a way that a traditional model would not be. The wins that we've had, we've had some sort of great wins that have been, um, that have included sort of some direct capital gifts, a lot of times programs that involve capital and scholarship and fellowship components, things like that. Mm -hmm. It's less, I think it's less that this creates opportunities for unique wins or unique programs. More so, it, I go back to this idea that Eric is a force multiplier for the president. The president you know, only has so many days on the road, um, only can get to so many countries around the world, only can see so many. You know, he's, he's got a, a just an um, out, outrageous amount of things on his plate, right? And development is an important priority, but is not the only priority on his time. So for him to have someone who he trusts that can do this work just means that there's more of those opportunities that are explored. And there's a little bit more of an appetite for doing some speculative work, you know, to reach out to people that, that are not directly affiliated with the institution yet. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's a little bit of sort of venture, the idea of sort of venture capital when it comes to the time, you know, if the, the president needs to see people that have been proven donors and maybe are at a different stage to make big asks. What do you think was put into place? I love this idea of a force multiplier, and I think that's the perfect way to describe it, but there's only one president. 
So yeah. what do you think it is that's, that's elevated Eric to allow him to have some of that gravitas and that, I don't yeah. want to say power, but, but impact. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. He is, yeah. well, he is, he's been recognized for a long time as a leader in the, in the cabinet for the president and for the prior president. So he's got, he's got some visibility. He's, he's taught probably 12,000 MIT undergrads. Wow. Introduction to computer science. So he's, um, he's got name recognition. He also, he also teaches, co-teaches a, a MOOC, which is the biggest MOOC on MITx. Um, and I think they had something like 2 million registrants. So he's got a lot, he's got a lot of sort of recognition out there and he knows probably 80% of the faculty. So he's got all that, his title chancellor, having the word chancellor in it plays well abroad. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, and so that helps get the door open a little bit. Um, but really where he shines is, you know, his sort of voracious appetite for all things MIT means he can speak on so many of the different pieces of research and teaching that are going on now. And that's what people that are attracted, people that are graduates of MIT, people that are attracted to the Institute are often quantitative in nature. And they um, see in him a sort of a kindred spirit in that. And he also has the, the data at his command to talk in depth about so many things at the Institute. And for us, you know, it often then sort of the flow of the programming goes, he may have a meeting with a donor. He will think with me and the relationship manager about the next step, which is usually a drill down to some star faculty member. Hopefully the donor will come to campus and Eric will introduce them to the faculty member and we'll sort of away we'll go with that, so. Is there anything else we should know about your role? I don't think you could force this on every institution. Right. I think it's it's more a matter of, it was a matter of the, uh, the president's recognition of an opportunity to be innovative, uh, sort of a very generous spirit on the part of Eric and meeting that charge. Do you have any tips for people who are working with senior leaders? I know that you're working with specific individuals, but best practices that we should keep in mind? Be prepared. I think I go back to the idea that they could be doing every hour that they give you in a meeting, um, they could be doing something else. And those other things that they could be doing are really great for them and for society. So you need to make sure that you're prepared and that you're spending the time that you are able to get wisely. Um, and that goes if you're working with a dean or with a faculty member, just to, to keep that in mind. It's sort of that. Not everyone does it. I know that. No, it's true. It's, it's, and, it's, and it's key because over time, that's how you build trust. And that's how you build a capacity to have decisions delegated to you. So when you start with, you have to justify everything that you're doing, you have to be prepared to do that. You know, at a certain point, you gain the ability to take a more active role in that based on the trust that you have with the person. You know? yeah. And I would say, you know, it's, it's interesting, at least from my perspective, and maybe this is just because I'm confident in some ways talking with them, that it's important to give in a respectful way the feedback that you need to give the faculty members so that they can become better development officers. I've rarely been disappointed in the conversations I've had like of such things with them that 
you know, they often the best, the best representatives of the institution want to do it well. Mm-hmm. And, right. Uh, and you say that, but giving feedback is very hard for most people. I'm actually reading the book Radical Candor right now. And they say that people want to do everything but give honest feedback. Well, the key there, I think, is always to, you know, pick your battles too, yeah. and to make sure that you, know, you don't have to go through every line, but to get the gist of what is most important. And then timely basis. I mean, I do it in the car after a call. It's, I don't wait for some debrief at the end of the trip if I can help it. Yeah, and in the moment feedback. In the moment, it's fresh. Yeah. Know, it's, it, and that goes both ways, you know, you sort of ask how they thought the meeting went as well. So it's, you know, it's just it, in the moment is definitely key timeliness. Like everything else, we all we all take it sort of more to heart when it's fresh in our mind and we can see someone else's perspective. Well, let's shift to talking about your position in the field. Of course, you've been in development for a long time. You've contributed a lot to our field. Can you tell us about the Charette Conference? That's kind of you to say. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'd love to. The this goes back to 2007 and I'll be quick. I'm a historian, so it's by training. So it's very difficult for me to no give you a voluminous answer to everything. So, <laughs> but, you know, comparative speaking, comparatively speaking, development conferences used to be, at least used to be, I don't know. I haven't gone to too many lately. Used to be pretty unpleasant. They were often in sort of secondary markets in the off season. You'd end up going to somewhere like, I don't know, Orlando in July. You know, it was never, it was never like, let's have a conference in February and make it take place in Hawaii. You know, there, right. it, was, it was never like that. They were also, you know, from my perspective, and I've been blessed, I know, to work at three great institutions. Um, they were also geared, I think, towards the common, the least common denominator in terms of the sort of the level of sophistication, the level of resourcing of the development shops that were mostly represented. Now, obviously, I'm sort of stereotyping, but at the time, I was finding that the gatherings were sort of insular as well. So if I was, sort of, for example, like a customer on the advanced platform, I'd never meet people with, who are customers on the BlackBot platform from a system side, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in 2007 and early 2007, I was sitting with one of my best friends who was working at another school, Greg Kimball, and we both were sort of coming across the same frustrations. We thought about what really made those we knew that there was a need for some professional development opportunities among our peers. We thought about what made a trip successful from our point of view. And that was sort of really basic, but it was like, if we came away with three new sort of colleagues that had some meaningful things to say and discuss with us, or if we came away with three good ideas, then we thought we were successful when we'd gone away to one of these conferences. So we quickly said, well, what if we did a conference that was based around those objectives? You know, not covering soup to nuts, the field, but coming away with a couple new friends to talk about challenges with, coming away with a couple of new ideas to kick around with our folks back at home and doing that in sort of an organic way. So we put together a a slate of about, I don't know, a dozen or 20 people that we had, you know, each of us had contributed to that list. And we brought together a group of folks in Northern California, the first charrette, and we call it a charrette because charrettes are like what the architects do when they're at crunch time at the end of the, their project. They've been cogitating and thinking and, you know, doing little sketches here and there, but, you know, 
they're coming up on deadline and they get they work all hours of the evening and they're pulling all nighters and all of that. That's what the shred is. Um, I love that word. Very yeah, cool. we put that together and we were off and running. My um, my VP at the time looked at me and said, "This called it my boondoggle," but the reality of it was that it was we were interacting with folks that were um, from institutions that were at least at the same level of sophistication as ours. Um, they were bringing really interesting ideas from other fields in sales and marketing, et cetera. And they were willing to sit with us around a table and have a conversation for a day and a half. So we got to, we, we pulled that out and, and I think it's influenced the, you know, it, it's gone on sporadically since then. It, we, only, we limited it to only one person per institution, so it couldn't be too skewed. We looked to try to bring some diversity in the institutions, you know, arts and healthcare and education, even though we were both from the education field. And it's influenced, I think, the development of some other gatherings since then. It was really an instance of not doing things the way we'd always done them, but thinking clearly about what our objectives were and trying to build the operational view out of that. Well, I just, I love that story because it started with a fun idea with a good friend and it was something that you really cared about and then it grew from there. Yeah, we, we hoped to get to some fun place at some fun time, but I think we stuck, I think the last time we had it, we had it in Baltimore, which was fun, but it was, you know, it was not Hawaii in February. So. <laughs> but, you know, there was sort of, it was, it, was, it was really interesting to hear the things that people were coming up with and um, the idea, it was, it was light on programming. You know, people were supposed to bring their own you know, a small thing that they could talk about for five minutes. And it was more a matter of than them introducing themselves through this project they'd worked on, sort of a show don't tell type mm -hmm. um, attitude. And, uh, you know, and we've had a couple of the folks, you know, been deeply involved with it. People like, like Josh Burkholz, who I know is um, involved with this podcast. So yes, Josh is the, the common thread here. He seems to really like these kinds of new ideas and experiments because that's where exciting new things come from yeah it's been a really great transformational time i have to say and the way development operations are run the way that we serve the needs of donors better through um, analytics the way we sort of mm -hmm. judge our own behavior and learn from our own processes using data so it's been terrifically fun to be involved in that um, you know, and not throwing out the art with, you know, making sure there's a balance between the art and the science, I think, mm -hmm. of fundraising has been, it's been my, my pleasure to be a part of that. I'm going to ask you a question that might be a little hard to answer, but fill in the blank. Innovation is... It's a dangerous question to ask somebody who's at MIT because I'm surrounded <laughs> by all these students and faculty members who are the real innovators and they are, they're just fantastic. So I don't want to it's sort of hubris for me to say anything about it, but I would say that I can fill that blank in a few different ways, if that's okay, Catherine. Sure. I'd like, I'd say that innovation, innovation is sort of the courage to break things. It's, um, it's an active response to a dissatisfaction with the status quo. I know it's sort of a mouthful, but I think that that's what it really is. It's, it's action um, against yeah. the status quo. Yes. And it's an attitude, not a product. So it's uh, it's a it's a way of thinking it's a way of iterating on a problem problem and not being bound to a specific outcome uh, you will break things but 
well, who was it? Um, Mario Andretti said, if you're not sort of, if, if, if everything seems under control, you're not going fast enough. That's the idea of innovation. Yeah. There's so much good to be done and there's so much um, to be lost in doing things the way we've always done them. Given what you've been through with the things that you've tried and put together over the years, what would advi- what's some advice that you would want to give us in terms of what we should know if we're embarking on a new innovation and perhaps what we should be warned of? I think that the key is always understanding what success is and what your vision of success is and then holding yourself to that. Coming back around to whether that be in sort of measurement of measurable things or that be sort of a stack of uh, ad hoc things that you expect to come out of an initiative, but keeping that sort of turning it around and making sure that you're always doing what your strategic vision makes you want to do or makes you want to accomplish is important. There's a danger in becoming so enamored of your own ideas that you can't assess them clearly. So that's, you know, that's a case where you need to have regular touch bases on whether or not you're achieving your objectives. What do you know for sure, Rob? What do I know for sure? I know for sure that, um, you know, it's sort of interesting. I know for sure that the motivation of donors can be incredibly easy to understand and it can be incredibly difficult to understand. And I know that one size certainly does not fit all. I know that it's important to focus your efforts on the places where the benefit is greatest to your institution. I know that sort of to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So it's important not to fall into old tropes like that. Um, Having worked with some really fabulous, wonderful, generous individuals, being, being able to see into their sort of thought processes around development, around how they view their philanthropy, is that, you know, in spite of what some of the books in the industry will sort of tout, there are many different motivations for people's philanthropic spirit and many different ways that they realize that. And it's really important to keep an open mind and not fall back into sort of what you know as the gospel. Thank you, Rob, for sharing your wisdom with us and for sharing your stories. It's great it to was, have you. It was really great. And thank you, Catherine. I appreciate it. I, um, I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of this series. I'm sure that there'll be some great ideas that I can pick up along the way. And I'll look forward to being introduced to some of your wonderful guests. Thank you for listening. Rob really showed us what it means to have a vision, execute it, and then, as this episode is called, multiply the force. He was able to have a greater impact than could have been possible without thinking in this new way. If you want to continue this conversation and others from this season, please join me and James Barnard of BWF to talk about this innovation series with a larger group. We'll be hosting a webinar on March 29th at 11 a.m. Please reach out if you'd like more information or have questions, and if you would like us to address a particular topic that you keep thinking about. Next week is our final episode of the season. See you then.